The Wilderness, God's Seminary. Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the sermon of the first Sunday of Lent, February 21st, 2021, from Christ Church, Jerusalem. As we begin Lent, we remember that the Spirit of God thrust Jesus into the wilderness to test him. This is a real test of Jesus' trust in the Father and faith in his identity affirmed by the voice of God at the Jordan. God tests the righteous, Reverend David Pelegi tells us, to show us who we really are. Satan and the world want us to fail. God wants us to succeed and sends us into times of testing to learn to trust that he is sufficient. A few weeks ago, we introduced you to a work dear to our hearts, the Jewish Believers Holocaust Project. Christchurch has commissioned a study to retrieve the names and stories of the Jewish Christians who suffered, just as other Jews, during World War II. Very little hard evidence, figures, and stories have ever been assembled about these victims, and their tragedy has been a largely untold chapter in the history of the Holocaust. After many years of work, the first fruits of this research project has been published. The book, Bosley and Anna Yotch, Jewish Christian Victims of the Holocaust by Kelvin Crombie is now available on Amazon as a paperback and ebook. To watch a video about Bosley and Anna Yach and to buy the book, visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Now, on to the lectionary readings. The first reading is from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 to 18. Every commandment which I command you today, must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which we will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose heels you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and you are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led you through that great and terrible wilderness in which fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do you good in the end. Then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. This is the word of the Lord. The uh, worship team in the temple were the Levites, and their songbook was the Psalter. 
And King David was one of its uh, songwriters, if you will, which is why down through the ages, the church has always included uh, readings from the Psalms, and even in translation, though they sometimes lose their poetry, their meaning comes through very clearly. And so it is with Psalm 11, which is the Psalm appointed for today. In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? But the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. This is the word of the Lord. And again, as with the temple, the revelation of the Lord directly is honored, especially by standing to hear it read. So please stand with me as we turn to uh, the Gospel of Mark, taken, a passage taken from the first chapter and beginning at the ninth verse. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my well-beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, the gospel of the Lord. Let's begin by praying. Father in heaven, we ask that in your mercy you would once again fill this place with your presence, and we pray that the presence of Jesus will be here to teach, again to instruct, to give us guidance and direction, and most of all to strengthen us and to give us courage so that when we are tempted or we are tested, we will remain faithful in all circumstances. Lord, we confess our weakness to you. So come and strengthen your people. We ask this for the sake of Jesus, the Messiah. Amen. I'd like to um, just once again think about the passage in Mark's Gospel, the prologue, and... Uh, for those of you who pay attention to these things, this is the third time since I think the 6th of January or the, or the second week in January that we have encountered these verses in the lectionary. They're very, very powerful and very, very significant verses. And uh, in fact, I'm glad in a way they're repeated because the first words out of the mouth of Jesus, I think are very appropriate for Lent. Of course, they're very appropriate for all seasons and even every day of our life. But uh, Jesus announces that the time is at now at hand and that people should repent and believe the gospel. So Lent is a time of repentance, but it's more than just repentance. Of course, it gets a bad rap uh, because so many people uh, have done, uh, take, uh, don't take Lent seriously and often 
I've turned it into some kind of a joke or some kind of a caricature. But basically, we should be turning. Yes, we're turning away from sin. We're turning away from maybe our bad habits, our laziness, whatever it may be. And we're turning to the Lord. It's not that we're just giving up something. As we said on Wednesday, we're giving up something in order to make room for something better. And so we turn away from something in order to turn to the Lord. And that's where the belief part comes in. Because belief, as it is um, defined for us in the New Testament, is not just something intellectual. But really, at its heart, it's trust. Yes? So it's turning away, again, from our self-centeredness, yes, and entering into a, a deeper trust. Yes, uh, a deeper discipleship with Jesus. And in that whole process, as we turn to the Lord and we can contemplate or we have a vision and we're not afraid to want to see his glory, his holiness, God will transform us according to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, right? It's when we turn to the Lord and behold his glory Yes, that we encounter transformation. And the verses that follow, the, ex the experience that Jesus has in the desert, uh, is also important at this time of the year because it has at its heart, yes, the same goal, this goal of transformation. Well, you may ask how or what, yes, does Jesus being uh, does the, uh, the temptations of Jesus or Jesus being driven into the desert have anything to do with uh, us being transformed? And I can say that uh, first and foremost, we should pay very careful attention to geography in the scripture. I think a lot of times we read the Bible, you know, places aren't necessarily important Maybe the, the history isn't necessarily important. But God oftentimes uses place and he uses geography. Um, and more often than not, biblical geography has some theological importance. And perhaps there's nothing more important, geographically speaking, um, than the desert. Because the desert in the scripture... And we get a hint of this, by the way. We had a hint of this in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Get a hint of this in Jeremiah 2. Uh, and, and Exodus and Numbers, of course. Uh, other passages in Deuteronomy. The desert for, for the people of ancient Israel was very dangerous. And it was frightening. And it was a place where bad things would happen. If you come from Eastern Europe, it's equivalent to the forest. Yes, you know, the, the, the deep, dark, the deep, dark woods. Because when you go into the desert, you could easily get lost. No one had a GPS. You could easily die of thirst. You could easily be swept away by a flood. You could fall off a cliff. And people were frightened out of their wits. In, the, in biblical times, they were frightened of wild animals. For all my American friends, you'll understand this. No one walked around with a 410 over and under or an AR-15. So wild animals were dangerous. The desert was dangerous. In fact, the, the biblical ideal, the Israelite man and woman, yes, wanted to sit under their own vine and their own fig tree. Yes, in their village. That's where it was safe. That's where it was secure and cozy. But what's... I actually should say one more thing as well here. It's not that the desert was only physically dangerous, but it was spiritually dangerous. The desert was the home of 
demons, right? All people in, throughout the Middle East in that time, and maybe even today, yes, including the Jewish people, believed believe that the demonic lived in the desert. Jesus in Matthew 12, when he cast out the demon, says that evil spirit's going to go back to, its, to, to, to the desert or to waterless places where it actually has a home. But of course, it'll be restless there and want to come back. So Jesus affirms this understanding that the desert is the home of the demonic. And if that's the case, really we have to ask ourselves, why is it that God sends all of his shining superstars, all of the big names that we read about in Scripture, all the people that we identify with, he sends them where? He sends them to the desert. Because the desert becomes God's training ground. It's God's seminary. It's where you are seasoned. It's where you experience, yes, God's provision in the midst of uh, some very bleak circumstances. It's where you hear God's voice. It's where you affirm or either deny your spiritual identity, your biblical identity. So whether it's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the list is very long. And we could be here most of the night just talking about the list. Yes, the patriarchs, they inherit the promised land. God said, all this land is yours. But in reality, they live on the fringe. Whether it's what is today the Jordan Valley or the area around Beersheba. They're living in the wilderness. And by the way, when we speak of the wilderness, we're not necessarily speaking of a desert that looks like the Sahara, though that might be the case. We're speaking of dry, uninhabited areas, oftentimes uh, used for, um, for sheep and goats. And we can think of Moses or David, or Elijah, yes, Joshua, Jesus, John the Baptist, Paul. And you may notice that in almost all of those cases, nobody willingly goes out to the desert to see a tequila sunrise. Yeah, nobody goes out to have a mystical experience and to have a desert retreat. Virtually all of these so-called superstars of the Bible are pushed out into the circumstance, pushed out into the desert by their circumstances, arranged by God. Yes, Moses is on the run. David is on the run. Elijah is frightened. And here in our gospel, when it says the Spirit, the Spirit pushes Jesus into the desert. The, the, it's as if as if the Holy Spirit puts a fist in his back and pushes Jesus into the desert. This gives a whole new meaning of being led by the Spirit. People say, oh no, I just want to be led by the Spirit. Well, in this case, the Spirit is quite dramatic. The Greek is very strong. It's not that God dropped a little suggestion like, hey, son, maybe you'd like to have a little, little uh, quality time with me in the desert. <clears throat> God pushes his son into the desert. Yes? And what's the purpose? What is the purpose of Jesus going into the desert? Yes? And encountering the devil? Well, it could be a little confusing. Because on one hand, just like Moses, David, Elijah, and more, Yes, God is going to test his son. And by the way, it's a real test. It's not he's going, to, he's going to pass the test because he's Jesus. It's a real test. Don't forget what the book of Hebrews says. It says that he was tested in all points like us. This can't be a sham or a joke or some kind of a charade. 
Jesus is tested. But when he encounters Satan, at least in Matthew and Luke, he's being tempted. Now, what's the difference? The difference is that, according to Psalm 11 that Daryl read, God tests the righteous in Psalm 11, verse 5. And why does God test the righteous? Because he loves us. It says he almost doesn't have a lot to do with the wicked, but he cares enough for us that he's going to make sure that all of us will be tested. And the purpose of the test, according to Deuteronomy chapter 8, which is one of the best chapters in the scripture about testing, there's two reasons that you can be tested according to that chapter. You can be tested, according to verse 2, in order to know, yes, what was in your heart and whether you would keep his commandments. And then later on in the chapter, people, one can be tested uh, in a sense as a form of discipline. Now, Jesus isn't being disciplined, yes, but Jesus is being tested. Yes, and according, and we go further, uh, testing uh, at the end of the chapter is, um, yes, is, is connected to humility so that in the end it may go well with you. It may go well with us. Now, God isn't trying to make us fail or he's not trying to trip us up. Yes, what he's trying to do is to show us actually who we are. He's trying to expose us to ourselves because I don't know any other, um, well, let's put it like this. We as human beings are the most, uh, we are incredibly self-deceptive. We, can, we will deceive ourselves. We will uh, certainly not acknowledge that we have a weakness. Uh, we will blame it on somebody else. You know, it's not our fault, etc., etc. And so there's not only, you know, there's not only um, uh, uh, self-deception, Yes, but there, of course there's self-justification. Well, it's not my fault. You know, I don't have that problem. And it's not only, we're not only lying to ourselves, but oftentimes our culture lies to us, our family lies to us, you know, our heart deceives us. Satan whispers in our ear. And of course, it's true, is it not? You know? I can meet somebody, spend a day with them, and in a few hours, you know, I've got the person generally, yeah, I'll have the person figured out. And I will certainly notice all their weaknesses and all the places, you know, where, where they're uh, not strong and their failings, et cetera, et cetera. doesn't take very long for us to nail people. But, you know, then we can spend the rest of our lives looking in a mirror. Yeah? And we'll just vaguely think, yeah, I could have a problem there, but I'm not really sure. And, you know, after all, I've got a good excuse for, you know, having an anger problem. And, and it's not serious. Yeah? And so, whether it's self-deception or self-justification... Someone once said that uh, we, all have a, we all have an attorney, a lawyer, who sits on our shoulder and whispers to us, you know, it's okay, it's okay, you know, you're, you're not really doing anything wrong, especially if you do it like this. Or whether it's the fact that we're blind to ourselves. It's that when God will test us, or when he puts us in difficult circumstances, then we see our weaknesses. Then we see those places, yes, that actually endanger us. We see those areas of our life, you know, that, are actually, that can actually 
uh, not just endanger us, but end up destroying us. So God doesn't want us to fail. He tests us because he loves us and he wants things to go well for us. By the way, it is, a, it is not only something that God does. You know, please don't sit around and let, you know, wait for your car to be repossessed, you know, so you can have a test and find out if you trust the Lord. Because we have, um, I think a, uh, this is a beautiful example of, you know, uh, God doing a work in us, and yet at the same time, God expecting us to only cooperate to do our part. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, he reminds uh, the church there, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. So it's something we do, yet it's something that God does at the same time. And it's something that we should do on a, on a regular basis by examining and listening to the Holy Spirit. Yes, reading the, letting the Scripture speak to us, uh, having enough humility to let other people speak to us and say, you know, Joe, you, you really can't behave like that. Yes, so it's something that God examines us, God tests us, again, so it will go well with us, and he does it so that we will actually know the true state of our heart. God doesn't, know, God doesn't need to know who we are. He knows who we are. It's the best medicine against self-deception. It's God, God, bringing, God testing us. Now, Satan wants to tempt us. Satan wants us to fail. Actually, the world wants probably the, most of us as Christians to fail. I mean, we might have many enemies that want us to fail, to sin, to fall down, to not live up to our testimony. Yes, that's the difference. God doesn't tempt us, but God does test us. God does test us. Now, how are we tested? As I said, in the desert, those superstars, biblical superstars, yes, they're often tested uh, in a similar way. Yes, they're also they're, they're tested as to whether they can trust God. Yes, can God, uh, can God prepare a banquet in the wilderness, Psalm 78 says. Can he? Can God care and provide for his people in a desert place? Or does it, is, does it only happen in the land of shopping malls and Walmart? Yes, and Amazon Prime and Whole Foods. Very easy in a way, or a lot easier to trust the Lord in a wealthy, affluent society than to trust the Lord where there's nothing. And I always like to remind people that when David writes Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, that psalm is written about the desert. It's not written about a grassy hillside in Wales. Not written about um, a um, bunch of sheep uh, in uh, Scotland, you know. And sometimes you have posters or even pictures in your Bible. And you have these very fat, white, fluffy sheep. And they're on a green, grassy hillside. And underneath it says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I've told people more than once, if you have such a picture hanging in your house, shame on you, that's probably bad art. Secondly, if you have it in the, in the, uh, the church secretary's office, or you have such a picture like this in your Bible, rip it down, cut it out, because it's a lie. When David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, he's writing about the Judean wilderness, where it rains two inches a year, and not more. So God sends us to the desert, or sends them, he also sends us in order, yes, to learn to trust that he's sufficient. 
Yeah, and, we, and sometimes it helps us to put away all our human scheming and human machinations. And it's another thing. When God sends the righteous, remember he loves the righteous. He cares for us enough. He cares for us enough to, to ensure that we're tested. Also, he cares for, enough, cares for us enough, according to the book of Hebrews, or loves us enough to make sure that we're disciplined. Right? Because what father who loves a son doesn't discipline that son? But the focus, again, isn't on discipline. It's, it's, tonight's on testing because we're looking at the Jesus model. You know, when, every, when, when you're out in the desert and there are no more distractions, there are no more distractions, what happens? You're in a, you're in a tough spot. Nothing is working. Things aren't going right. What am I doing here? All of a sudden, you know what? Our diary isn't full anymore. And we don't have lots of meetings. And then we get all, we become all ears. We want to listen to what God has to say to us. Otherwise, we're too busy doing ministry. Otherwise, we're too busy with the family. So it's very often in the desert that we hear God's voice. It's often when we're tested. Things aren't going according to plan that we will take, make the effort to listen to the Lord. Otherwise, we have a little devotion in the morning and you know, and off we go. We got things to do. And sometimes we're doing them all for the Lord. Something else. And I think this is the most important. And it, and it help, uh, helps us to circle back to some of the things we're saying at the beginning of the year. I think the biggest test for them, those superstars, and for us, is when it comes to identity. So think about it for a moment. Abraham's going to get all the land of Canaan. And what does he end up with? A burial plot for Sarah. Wait a minute. What does that say about God's promises? And, you know, Isaac and Jacob are going to get these blessings, and they're also going to inherit the land. What do they have? And then we have Moses, you know, the prince of Egypt, according to Walt Disney or D Disney pictures. Yes, raised in the court of Pharaoh. And he ends up 40 years being a nobody. And what about David? He's anointed, and yet he runs around like a thief. Wait a minute, this picture doesn't make sense. And Elijah, my goodness, the only one of only two prophets anointed by the Spirit in the Hebrew Bible. He's, you know, he, he dresses down the prophets of Baal. You know, he stands up to Jezebel and to Ahab. There's fire on the mountain. Sounds like a rock song. There's fire on the mountain, Carmel. And next thing we know, he's running for his life because he's afraid. And he's running down to Horeb. And Jesus, there's another. There's Jesus, he hears a voice. Yes, and the Spirit descends upon him. And that voice is the voice of God. And he's the beloved son. And God is well pleased with him. You'd think God would give him a promotion, you know, make him a CEO of some big company. And God does what? God has the Spirit, yes, drive him into the desert. It's a Trinitarian event, by the way, at the baptism. It's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. 
is driven into the desert. The beloved son. And of course, in Matthew and and Luke, we have the devil challenging. We have the devil challenging that identity. Yes, our Bible says, says, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. But literally, the Greek probably says, since you're the son of God, go ahead, do a miracle. Yeah, you know, it's the, uh, those of you who are familiar with Henry Nowen, you know, he once said that the, the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness are the same temptations that every ministry leader faces. Yes, the temptation to be relevant, turn these stones into bread. This temptation to be spectacular, you know, jump off the temple and your angel, the angels will catch you. And most of all, that temptation to be powerful. Just bow down and worship me and I'll give you all this money. You know, and you know what some of us would have said? Wait a minute. You know, if I do that, I can have all this money for the gospel. Now, of course, people don't literally bow down and worship Satan. But boy, there's a heck of a lot of idolatry that to be found in ministry. And a lot of wrong shortcuts. Some shortcuts are okay. But others, you know, are unethical and immoral. And so, each one of those are biblical her- heroes who found themselves in the desert and we can be slightly allegorical because we often find, we find ourselves tested and we find ourselves in the desert. You know, we will be challenged in that identity. We will be challenged in that identity. Who are we? And you know, the voice will come and say, you're a nobody or you're nothing. What do you expect from God? Or another voice might come and say, you're too good for this. Why are you putting up with this religious stuff? You know? Uh, whatever it may be. And God, indeed, will test us. Yes, he will test us and or arrange for us to be tested. And I want you to note that when we read through Mark's gospel, Jesus is very rarely tested by the devil. Instead, he's more often than not tested by the religious establishment, by the political establishment. He's tested by his family who thinks he's crazy and they want to do an intervention. And most of all, he's tested by his disciples. Yes, he gives his life for them. He loves them. He teaches them. And they continually misunderstand him and they continually put obstacles in the way to try to keep him from going to the cross. And so it will be with us Yes, we will be tested. We will lose our job. We will have relation. We will have difficulty in our family. And by the way, when God tested Abraham, the most significant test, maybe in in all of the tests, Abraham was tested. Yes, in the arena of family. Yes, we, yeah, we will, um, you, you name it, yeah, God will allow us to be tested, doesn't maybe, or, I don't know, the theology, he organizes this, he allows this, yes, but we indeed are tested. As individuals. By the way, I would even go as far as to say that we, as a society, as a culture, we are also being tested. And I'm not sure, especially in so called the Christian West, I don't think we're passing the test. I don't think we're actually doing, uh, I'm not sure that we're doing very well. I think the whole Corona pandemic has exposed, yes, a lot of weaknesses 
and limitations in our society. And I'm not sure that uh, most people are going to, to take notice yes, of uh, the way that almost all political systems have failed. Yes, of the greed that's involved of uh, the whole notion that, uh, you know, scientific progress, you know, and uh, technology, you know, solving all our problems. Because very easily in a few years, another pandemic can come along. But we're being tested. The church, in many Western countries, we're being tested. We're not being tested by um, persecution. That's happening in places like uh, Nigeria or northern Cyprus. But we're being tested, you know, um, or let's say our immorality, yes, our shallowness is being exposed. And we can repent and turn to the Lord, or we can call in, you know, uh, a mediator to somehow fix up the problem and the law firms, whatever it may be. I think also, and we, I think also want to just say one more word in before we conclude and talk about, talk about Jesus and how, what we can learn from him and how he passed the test. The, the devil is in the desert. What do we do with that? I mean, do we not drive out to the Dead Sea anymore because we might be jumped upon, you know, by demons? And of course, many people are going to uh, hear such a thing, and of course, they're going to dismiss the demonic or even, you know, this biblical understanding. But I'd like to suggest to you that with the desert being the home of the, the devil, is that there's a very, very, uh, I would say, important, significant uh, truth there that we cannot ignore. And again, I, think it's, I do think it's connected to what's happening in our society today. The desert is a place where there's no law and order. The desert's a place where there's no civilization. Uh, the devil is a place, sorry, the desert is a place where there's no law and order. The desert is a place where there's no civilization. Uh, the desert is a place that's lawless. And where do we see Satan operating? in the places where, uh, where we have lawlessness, right? In the places where we have anarchy and chaos. And I'm not necessarily talking about anarchy in the street. We can moral anarchy as we have, yes, uh, in our society. Confusion about uh, gender and sexuality or confusion about race, right? All of this kind of chaos and, and a certain intellectual, even philosophical anarchy, as well as it could be a breakdown of society, which maybe hasn't happened yet. All of this is where the devil rules and reigns. Yes. And this is the challenge that we face as a culture and a society, and even as individuals. Now let's finish by saying, what is it about Jesus what do we hear and see about Jesus that in some way that something that we can learn from so that when we're tested, we can take something from Mark's gospel. Now, Mark's got the most minimal amount of information for us. Um, he doesn't tell us very much, but he still tells us something. And by the way, so many commentators and commentaries you know, they take this minimal amount of information and they wildly overinterpret um, these verses. It's amazing what uh, people uh, can come up with. But here's, here again is uh, the verse. It says, At once the Spirit sent him, but again the Greek is stronger, drove him into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels att attended him. You know, when we're tested, 
it's very often there is a humiliation that goes with the test. Yes, somehow we fail. Somehow our resources aren't adequate. We don't have enough money. We can't get along with people. Um, we made of some kind of mistake with the bank or the credit <coughs> card <coughs> company. Our family relations fail, and there is a humiliation. So I would think that um, in this context, we have to remember that Jesus was fasting, right? And when you fast, that fasting is a form of humbling ourselves. And therefore, when God is testing us, we need to very carefully discern. Yes, I think we need to very carefully discern if we need to humbly go along with the test. Maybe he's trying to teach us something. Maybe he wants us to learn. Maybe he wants to expose something in our life and therefore can strengthen us. Now, not every time something bad happens is it a test, and we, do, we don't always have to be passive about it. You know, uh, it reminds me of the, you know, the, what is it, the, um, the Calvinist who fell down the stairs. You know, there was a guy who believed in serious belief in predestination, and uh, he's at the top of the stairs, and he trips, and he, tumbles all the way down the stairs, and he's pretty roughed up, but he gets up, brushes himself off, and he kind of says to himself, well, I'm glad that's over with, right? Meaning somehow it was in God's will. Well, it's not always. These things aren't necessarily in God's will, but sometimes they are. And if they are, we need to, as Jesus did, yes, uh, practice a certain humility. I think the next thing that's really important, is that Jesus himself is nourished by the scriptures. Yes, not only is he a young man, but he hears God's voice. You are my beloved son from Psalm 2. Listen to him from Isaiah 42. So, of course, the scriptures in any test are going to uh, guide us or direct us or instruct us and God himself will uh, no doubt speak through the scripture. And it's those scriptures, by the way, that give Jesus an identity. And no matter what happens to us, no matter what happens to us, yes, we will be tested in our identity. Yes, things aren't going well. Things are a disaster. I really messed up. Whatever it may be, you know, I'm a sinner, I've failed, um, or why is God doing this to me? By the way, God tests us, but if we remember the stories of Israel in the desert, whether it's Psalm 106 or Psalm 78, Israel tested God. They pushed him and tried to manipulate him. Yes, be all that you can be. Yes, and do what I want you to do. Right? So we have to make sure that we don't test God, but we allow God uh, in a certain humility to test us. And finally, we need to be sure of our identity. Yes? Who are we in Christ? Yes? Who are we that Jesus, that God so loved the world that he sent his only son for us? We're heirs, we're children of God which doesn't mean things will always go well for us, but it means that we're secure in that relationship with him. And not only are we secure in that relationship, because of who we are in that relationship, yes, we do certain things. We have a certain expectation. We don't let the world or the devil, yes, define that identity for us. So I just thought of this verse Earlier, it says um, in First John chapter 1, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now that we are children of God, no matter what test comes our way, including the dreaded C test, cancer, 
No matter what test comes our way, sickness or bankruptcy or, God forbid, divorce that happens to us, It says, well, now that we are children of God and what, will, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. That's our identity. Yes, that we're children of God and we're called to holiness. I think the way of summing this up is thinking about uh, Jesus himself, you know, not diverting from that identity, although the, the devil and the apostles and the political system and the religious system will all try to move him uh, away from, you know, from his uh, sonship and the, uh, the task that God has that God has uh, given him. I think, uh, I think a beautiful summary of all that we said can be found at the end of 1 Peter chapter 4. And here it says the following. And let's apply this to all that we've been saying. It says, all of you, Peter says, oh, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse, um, starting in verse 5. All of you, clothe yourself with humility towards one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him. Yes, including those things that are uh, testing us. Because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace, who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.